0: <speaking in foreign language> An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening again, everybody. I bet you we don't have sound now, right? No. How about now? Okay. Can you turn it? Uh,
1: uh,
0: I can speak up if not. That's the most of it. You think it will go? I can tell more, but I'm So uh, let me tell you my name again. It's uh, Norman Fisher, and I'm a uh, priest and a student at the uh, San Francisco Zen Center Green Gulch Farm down the road uh, for a long time. But uh, recently I retired. And now I uh, don't live at Green Gulch anymore. I I live a little bit down the road and I just loaf, (laughs) enjoy life, uh, do a little meditation, stuff like that. So I thought that uh, since... uh, I am, from the Zen tradition, I would give tonight an official traditional Zen kind of talk on the theory that you don't get those so often. (laughs) I don't always give a talk like that, but I thought it would be more interesting, you know, since uh, it's probably, at the Zen Center, I give a Vipassana talk. (laughs) But here... It would be much more interesting if I give a traditional Zen talk, so as you all probably know, uh, the traditional subject for Zen talks uh, is a koan, and there are a number uh, actually there are three major collections of koan. One collection has, uh, two of the three collections have a hundred cases in them and the typical format is uh, the case, the koan, preceded by an introduction and followed by a poem about the case. And then the talk consists of a commentary to the case, the introduction, and the poem. The third of the three major uh, collections is called Mumonkan, Khan, Gateless Barrier. And I've been slowly uh, working my way through all of the 48 cases of The Gateless Barrier, and tonight I would like to speak about case number 27. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> it must be a very funny case already we have. Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> These people
0: obviously know the case well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you would like to give the lecture.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> case 27, uh, is. the title of the case is Not Mind, Not Buddha, Not Anything. That's the title of the case. And it goes like this. A case, a monk asked Nanchoan, Is there a truth that has not yet been taught? Nanchoan said, There is. The monk said, What is that truth? And Nanchoan said, It is not mind, not Buddha, not anything. So that's the case. And the uh, short comment to the case of Master Mumon, the compiler of the Mumon Khan, his comment is Asked the question, Nanchuan used up all his resources at once. How pathetic! And Mumon's verse, that was the the commentary. And the verse is, An excess of scruples kills virtue. Non-words have the strongest effect. Even if the great ocean dries up, it will never be explained to you. So... This is our subject for tonight, and I will now I will give you my commentary to all this. Uh, I do, uh, part of my uh, new loafing life is to go to Mexico uh, a couple times a year and do retreats uh, on the beach in Mexico. We, we have a place that's right on the beach, and um, I like going down there a lot for the beach, but also... Uh, because the retreats in Mexico are very basic and very simple. Down in Mexico, uh, the people that I work with don't really know that much about Zen practice, nor do they care about it, particularly, all the bells and whistles and uh, forms and so forth. They just have the idea that they would like to practice because they think that it will help them in their lives, that it will help them to survive their troubles and... Sometimes they have bad troubles, like terrible husbands and political oppression and poverty. They think maybe that the practice will help them to be uh, better family members and better workers, better citizens. So they come and they want to practice. It's very simple. They're not really concerned about Buddhism. They don't read books about Buddhism. So I I really like going down there and working with them because of that because of their sincerity and their simplicity. Not that they're simple-minded people. All kinds of people come. Very intelligent and educated people. But their approach to Buddhism is very practical. Another thing uh, that I like about going down to Mexico is that uh, the retreats in Mexico are bilingual, because some people come from up here. Uh, It's about a mixture of people from uh, the uh, north. Uh, and also people from Mexico, so the retreats are uh, both in Spanish and English. So uh, that way, when I give a talk, I only have to say one sentence. Then somebody translates it, and so while they're translating, I'm thinking of another sentence and then <laughs> say another one. So it's kind of nice. You get into a rhythm of speaking. And the translator uh, who I work with is a wonderful person, and she's perfect in English. She's fluent in English, uh, speaks without any accent. You wouldn't know that she uh, is a native Spanish speaker, but she doesn't know a lot of Buddhist terminology. So, uh, and also because it's, you know, translating back and forth, it talks her exactly twice as long, right? So it takes a long time to give a talk and she gets tired. So I have to speak, you know, very carefully without using a lot of jargon and very clearly so that she can translate and, you know, in a simple way without getting too exhausted. So it's good for me because uh, I have to speak, you know, more clearly and more carefully than I usually do. And I have to, if I want to say something complicated, I have to say it in a very simple and clear way. And that's a wonderful exercise for me. And, uh, you know, in a typical Zen lecture, when I go somewhere else and give a retreat, uh, the lecture is formal in the sense that there's no discussion or questions at all afterward. I just give the lecture, the end, that's all. But in Mexico, uh, people have many questions, so there's usually hours go on, you know, for questions, and it's very interesting the questions that people ask. On this last retreat, uh, and it was last month, um, we we chant, you know, all the sutras. We chant, we translated them into Spanish, so we, all all the texts and liturgy is, tra- tra- uh, is chanted in Spanish. So we chant this uh, Mahayana Buddhist text called the Heart Sutra in Spanish, several times uh, a day. Uh, Probably many of you have heard about the Heart Sutra. It's the very famous sutra that has in it lines like, there are no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body and no mind. It also says, in relation to the four noble truths, you know, the truths of suffering, origination, stopping and path, the Heart Sutra says, there is no suffering, There is no origination, there is no stopping, and there is no path. Now, I've noticed that over the years that most people from North America, when they hear the Heart Sutra for the first time, they think it's rather strange, but they never say anything. (laughs) And I guess this must be because they think that it expresses some deeply profound Buddhist truth that they have not yet understood, and they don't want to let on. That they have not yet understood, so they don't say anything. They also think that it's extremely complicated, and so you know they don't want to ask about the Heart Sutra, thinking that it, you know it'd be far too complicated to, to even ask about. It. They don't even know what to ask, you know. Maybe some of the people, when they hear the Heart Sutra, they imagine that everybody in the room except for them understands the Heart Sutra, and that's why they don't want to ask anything about the Heart Sutra for fear they'll show, you know, their ignorance when everybody else really does understand the heart sutra. So you never get a question. Somebody says what does the heart sutra say or something like that. Never happens. So what happens is they wait till somebody gives a class on the heart sutra. And we do, we give class, usually 6 or 8 week class on the heart sutra and, you know, several hours each session. And it takes about that long to cover the text and do justice to it. And then the last two or three classes, you're rushing really fast because you didn't, you know, you have to finish, even though the text is only one page long. Anyway, uh, at this retreat in Mexico, one woman said, "We are every day chanting El Sutra del Corazon, which is the name of the Sutra in Spanish." And it doesn't make any sense to me. Can you please explain?" she asked. You know. <laughs>
2: You know, this would never
0: happen. <laughs> That's why I like going to Mexico. You know. <laughs> there, there they would say that. Here, you'd ne- nobody would. So I thought it was a wonderful challenge. I, I should explain the Heart Sutra that takes six to eight weeks to, to, to talk about in a few sentences. Well, it isn't that hard to do, actually. Uh, the Sutra is really simply a list, it's just a list of the most important, most fundamental, most basic Buddhist teachings, it just lists them one by one, without any explanation, just a list of them. And then it denies every item on the list. (coughs) So when it says no eyes, no ears, no nose, that refers to, and simultaneously denies the Buddhist analysis of perception and thought. And, although it says, no eyes and so on, it doesn't really mean that eyes and so forth don't exist. It just means that what we take to be eyes and so on is not what eyes and so on, nose and so forth, ears, tongue, body, mind, actually are. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, appear to be, you know, stuff organic materials, stuff, little perceptual machines. That's what they appear to be, which, I mean, they are on a conventional level. But if you really, deeply situate yourself in eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, and become very intimate with the actual experience, the functioning of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, you see that these things are not what they appear to be, that they're actually, you can't see them, they're ungraspable. They're ungraspable, vast, mysterious. The act of seeing something, hearing something, is a vast mystery how this could happen and what actually does happen, what we really experience. Even thinking a thought in our mind is a vast mystery. We don't really understand how this is, what this experience is. All the various teachings of Buddhism, the Heart Sutra is saying, in other words, and this world that these teachings of Buddhism are supposed to be describing, all these things defy our various explanations of them, our various descriptions of them, which we believe in passionately and we act on passionately, as if they were really true, and this is why we are suffering as we're endlessly looking for an ultimately unfindable objective satisfaction based on this unexamined and faulty description or notion of what the world is. So the sutra, in denying all these things one after another, is just trying to help us out a little bit by pointing out that the way we think things are The way we think reality is, isn't what reality actually is. We ourselves are not what we think we are. Our way of looking at and explaining things uh, to ourselves is fundamentally flawed, and we don't know that, and we don't know how it's flawed. There's a famous story uh, told about Dongshan, a great Zen teacher, one of the early Zen teachers. Uh, He was a little boy, and he heard the Heart Sutra being chanted. And right away, he put his hands on his face, and he felt his face, and he said to his teacher, I'm feeling my face, and I feel a pair of eyes there, and I feel a nose, and I have ears. So what's this Sutra talking about? And the teacher right away said, oh, you need a better teacher, and send him away to a <laughs> better teacher. Maybe it takes a child or uh, someone that innocent to be able to really appreciate uh, the wonder of what the Heart Sutra is teaching us. Then there's a modern uh, Zen story about uh, Kabori Roshi. Who uh, lived uh, about the middle of this uh, past century 20th century once a Catholic priest went to visit him and, and the Catholic priest was very earnestly you know qu- questioning him about the doctrine of emptiness Buddhist the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness what is emptiness you know and Kabbare was she said, "Oh gee, I don't know it's just some old phrase in a sutra I don't know I've always admired this response of Kaboru Roshi, a very mature, very quiet, very deep Zen response, which is probably much more expressive of what emptiness actually is than some complicated philosophical explanation that he might have given. Because uh, explanations of emptiness, as if emptiness were something, only lead us uh, in the opposite direction before we take up uh, our spiritual practice we are probably all of us living in a state of naive unawareness crashing around probably making more trouble in our lives than we need to without knowing how we're doing that Maybe uh, the pain of all that trouble uh, drives us to our cushions, or maybe not, maybe we don't have that experience, but maybe it's just that we have this feeling somehow that we are naïve, we really don't know what our life is all about, and maybe that's what brings us to our cushion, and then we do sit down, we attend we, treat, we study the teachings a little bit, we learn about mindfulness, we learn about clinging and the suffering that clinging brings. Some of the teachings, first we hear about them and then we verify them for ourselves. Other teachings, we don't hear about. We just see them ourselves through our own experience on the cushion and off the cushion. And then later on, someone says some teachings and we say, ah, that's what I've been experiencing, that's what I've found. And then we think, ah, this is right, this is real, this is true. And then, we hold on to that knowledge and experience, we make it into a fixed concept, and then we have a new version of suffering, a little more sophisticated, a little more classy, but nevertheless more or less the same pattern as the one that we had before. So the Heart Sutra, the burden of the Heart Sutra is just, you know, it says, don't do that. Don't do that. Let go, even, of your understanding. Let go of your nice uh, Buddhist understanding. Because there isn't anything whatsoever that you can hold and define and keep it that way. And if you would like to make what I just said into another kind of definite truth, which is possible, then you know, give that up too. This is what the Heart Sutra is t- telling us. Now the present case uh, that I read in the beginning is actually related to several other famous Zen koans and they all kind of play off each other. In um, the Mungam Khan uh, case 30, 33, and 34 are almost the same. They're all variations on a theme. In those stories, they go like this. Someone asks, this is more or less the same, the stories, all of them the same. Someone asks, what is Buddha? And someone else says, this very mind is Buddha. So that's good, don't you think? What is Buddha? This very mind is Buddha. So this we can understand and appreciate. In other words, Buddha is is not some prior or future state. You know, later we'll find Buddha, or Buddha lived a long time ago or something like that. That isn't what Buddha is. Buddha is this very mind. Not something else outside of our lives, outside of our experience. My own mind my own heart, my own experience, at bottom, this is what Buddha is. Of course, I'm only seeing my own mind, my own heart, my own experience, partially. Seeing it in a reduced state, reduced by my own uh, mental habits, by my own conditioning. If only I could see it as it really is, then I would be seeing Buddha, not somewhere else, not in somebody else, but in myself, if only I could see my own thought, my own feeling, my own experience as it really is. So this is really great. You know. This very mind is Buddha. That's really something you can sink your teeth into. And that's really the most important teaching in, in the Zen school of Buddhism, that this very mind is Buddha, not elsewhere, not even in some perfected state, but this very mind right now, in the present moment, as we are right now, this very mind is Buddha, and you could cite scores of Zen koans that make this point: mind is Buddha, Buddha is mind. So, what is this mind then that is being spoken of? First of all, uh, we have to note that in Chinese, the word for mind and the word for heart are the same word. There's no different two different words to denote these two things. Mind then doesn't just refer to our thinking mind, to our brain. It includes all of our feeling, all of our emotion, as well as physical sensation and so on. But it's still bigger than all that. The mind really means life, the spark of light within each living being that animates the body and turns it from a hunk of meat into a person. Mind means consciousness, that which is capable of cognizing, the big, embracing space in which we are all living that makes sentience possible. And the word mind even is beyond that, it even extends to what we would call non-sentient beings. Rocks and trees and roof tiles are also part of what's meant by the word mind. All that is, which is inseparably connected, this is what's meant by shin in Chinese mind, inside us and outside us. That's why it's very difficult to pin down the mind, reduce it, locate it, and talk about it, because it's inherently unspeakable and mysterious. Even though it's always present in each and every one of our thoughts and actions, every moment of consciousness includes all of mind. That's why, earlier when we were sitting, you know, I was saying just be intensely present with your experience right now. There isn't any more enlightenment than that. That intense uh, appreciation and wonder at every moment of experience, that big bright space in which we're always living but hardly ever noticing. Mind is, uh, we think, not body, but it's not different from body either. Self-consciousness, the sense of me, I, that arises endlessly in our life as long as we have a body, there always is this feeling. I arising, even that is at bottom, nothing other than a manifestation of this limitless mind in this limited world. Even the sense of me, even my claim, even my self-centeredness is nothing other than Buddha, although it gets kind of mixed up. And it identifies itself exclusively with thoughts, feelings, and body. And it forgets about this endless brightness that we also are. And so it's always got, right in the middle of it, a tremendous yearning. Yearning because it feels incomplete. It feels estranged from its wholeness, even though it's always right in the middle of it. So that's pretty much the human problem, don't you think? We're all convinced, I mean not only intellectually but deeply emotionally and psychologically, we're all convinced that we are incomplete, small, separate, isolated, vulnerable. We're convinced that we're born and that we die. So we're always looking for something. And of course, we're never getting it. Even if we get it, it's not the something we're looking for. Have you noticed? <laughs> you know, we're looking for a better spouse. or <laughs> we'll make this one better. Or a better career. Or Dharma. We're looking for Dharma. Looking for spirituality. But really, It's just mind looking for mind in the middle of mind. (laughs) It's just Buddha looking for Buddha in the middle of Buddha. The uh, uh, Japanese Zen master who is the founder of our lineage in Japan uh, named Dogen had a very famous uh, awakening experience uh, where he said, I dropped body and mind. What is the body? What is the mind? Just that feeling of dropping, which means we stop looking around for something that's actually already here. And we just allow ourselves to be that. And we don't have to get something extra, just allow ourselves to be what we already are. Dropping body and mind is not knowing anything. It's a willingness to not know anything, to just be in the dark with what is. Clarity, the clarity that we seek, it has some stickiness in it. Our spiritual practice, you know, our desire to advance and so forth in our spiritual practice has some stickiness in it. The mind is beyond clarity and unclarity. It's beyond spiritual practice. And it's not just inside us, as I said, it's something shared. It is sharing communication, dialogue, connection, the big space of ultimate togetherness. It's fearless. As Master Mumon says in his poem, even when the oceans dried up, it still abides beyond all explanations. So this morning I was, I get up in the morning, you know, and sit there. I'm not really meditating, I'm just sitting there. <laughs> Meditation is too much to say, you know. I'm just sitting there. So today I was sitting there, thinking about all this. And I was trying to just sit there for a long time, being the feeling of sitting there and nothing else. I was trying to uh, let go of my body and mind and just be mind sitting there on the cushion. The feeling of breathing, the feeling of sitting, the feeling of cognition present with the feeling of breathing and the sound of the ocean waves, because I live close to the ocean. And then after a while, the feeling of dawn coming little by little. And I suppose, while I was sitting there, time passed. The clock said so, but you couldn't know it by me. This is really the experience of our sitting practice. And it's really important uh, to come back to this experience uh, every day. And then to have confidence that even when your mind is not directly resting in this feeling, the feeling is still there. It's the background feeling of your uh, body and mind all the time. If it weren't there, then your mind couldn't work. You couldn't be conscious. You couldn't feel anything. You couldn't cry tears when something was sad. And you couldn't laugh when something was funny. If this big space of presence that I'm speaking about, this big space of mind as Buddha. Weren't there all the time? You couldn't have human feeling and emotion, human awareness, human consciousness. So we have, we return, you know, every day to an experience of this bigger space. We train in it until we have confidence and we realize that it's there all the time. And that's really the process, I think, of our practice, is to train ourselves in that until we know and we have confidence and we have strength of con- confidence and conviction in that. As you know, uh, the Buddha taught a lot of stuff. He, the Buddha didn't take any time off, you know, there was no weekends in the Buddha's life. He taught every day of his life for 45 years. And he was a brilliant teacher, the Buddha was. You would be hard pressed to find anyone who knew more about the human mind and about what to do about the human mind than Buddha. But according to the Zen tradition, at the end of the Buddha's life, after 45 years of discourses every day, and answering questions and dialogue, he said, I never said a word. I never opened my mouth. This was not, uh, you know, a cry of despair. Oh no, I wasted my life. You know, <laughs> this was not an expression of uh, Buddha's defeat. Quite the opposite. It was Buddha's way of affirming. That right in the middle of all the things that he had said, all of his great suggestions, all of his brilliant analyses, all of his useful techniques, at the center of all that was this unsayable, unknowable uh, truth of mind itself. Irreducible and inexpressible and yet unmistakable and absolutely necessary for our lives. So, the case asks, is there a truth that has not yet been taught? Is there a truth that could never be taught? Because it's too big for that. It's too intimate for that. It's too close for that. It could never be taught. Is there such a truth? The monk asks Nan Chuan in our case, yes. Nan Chuan says, yes, of course there is. What is that truth? It's not mind, it's not Buddha, it's not anything. Because as soon as you reduce it to something nameable and graspable, that you can identify with and cling to, which we all want to do all the time, it disappeared. And yet, sometimes you do say, as other masters said, Nanchuan's own teacher, Matsu, said, this very mind is Buddha. And when you say that, you know, it's not mind, it's not Buddha, it's not anything. Somebody once asked Matsu, why did you say it? You know, if you know that, why did you say it's, this mind is Buddha? And, Chuan, and, and Matsu said, well, sometimes when the baby's crying, you have to comfort her. <laughs> I'm sure that unless we can appreciate uh, this that I'm speaking of, it will be hard uh, to really and truly live a peaceful life, a life of some joy and depth, because we'll always be looking for something, we'll always be after something, we'll always be a little bit restless like ghosts clinging to bushes and grasses. Mind is already profoundly quiet. That's the condition of mind. Mind is already letting go of mind, just allowing everything to be, and, when the time comes, not to be. And the reason that meditation practice is so profoundly satisfying, and I find it so, and I'm sure you do as well, even though it's not always comfortable, even though it's often difficult, even though it sometimes can be painful, painful, you know, physically painful, emotionally painful. Still, meditation practice is profoundly satisfying because in meditation practice, no matter what happens, we unfailingly meet up with mind, this mind that I'm speaking of. We unfailingly merge with mind. Even though we might not know it, even though we might not have an exalted experience of it, we are indelibly transformed by it, no matter what happens if we continue with our practice and let go. So that's my Zen commentary on uh, Mulan Khan, Case 20, 27. And uh, I left time for a dialogue, discussion, <laughs> in case there is any. Uh, please, whatever you'd like to bring up. Go ahead. Yes? I have a question about awakening.
1: In Marin, in the Bay Area here, there seems to be a lot of teachers who are supposedly awake.
2: So my question is, are there degrees of awakening and are these teachers uh, in the same place as the Buddha was or can we ever know that? And also, in the Buddhist time, were there other beings who were awake?
0: What a great question, well you know, um, in a way Uh, There's a big assumption in your question. Uh, Your question uh, assumes awakening uh, to be, you may not think this, but when I hear your question, it seems to me that your your question assumes awakening to be a particular measurable state of mind, as if you could put like a brainwave tester. You know, on, and you could figure out how much of this state of mind is present in this person and that person, and so on. But I don't think it is that. And I don't think that uh, the Buddha taught that. The Buddha was aware of a variety of states of mind, meditative states that were higher and lower and more persistent and deeper and so forth. But he said awakening wasn't that. Awakening was something that was off the scale altogether, and that would, could be uh, present when the mind was agitated or when the mind was calm and so forth. So I think awakening you know, is not a state of mind. Awakening is simply freedom within any state of mind. So, personally, I think um, it's kind of useless to... Uh, to assess someone's uh, degree of awakening and so forth, I think what's important is experience and sincerity and conviction of practice for you, in, in you, and as far as your evaluation of a teacher that you might be interested in working with, it's whether there's affinity. Because if a great teacher comes with superior awakening and doesn't resonate with you, it's useless for you. So you'd be better off having a teacher with uh, uh, low level awakening and high level affinity with you than having a high level awakening teacher which uh, doesn't do a thing for you. Now, uh, so. Well, the other uh, awakened teachers in the Buddhist time, were, are, are awakened teachers of the today equal to the Buddha? Well, on one level, yes, because uh, awakening is, is awakening, and there are no degrees. Uh, but also, actually, any conscious person is also, fundamental, on the fundamental level, the equal of the Buddha, you, yourself, for instance. You are also, fundamentally, the equal of the Buddha. Um, Because of causes and conditions in this world, the Buddha is a great teacher. Maybe you are too, I don't know, but probably it's unlikely that you are a great teacher in the same way that the Buddha was, just because of causes and conditions in this world. You see? Like they say, uh, you know, the, 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 our, our founding uh, Zen teacher in America, Shomuya Suzuki, was a great Zen master, one of the greatest. But he wasn't great because of something about him. He was great because of causes and conditions. Because uh, when he was in Japan, he was like an average Joe. He wasn't a great Zen master in Japan. He was an average Joe. Not a big shot. But when he came to America, he opened his mouth in English in 1959 in the situation that existed then and boom, he became a great teacher. I mean, he had to, it wasn't that he was uh, not capable of that, but he, in other words, his being and karma perfectly matched the situation and all together. So we say Suzuki ratio was a great teacher, what we mean by that is, The times were right, everyone was there, the situation was in place, all together they created this fiction we call Suzuki Roshi. Just like all together the people in those days created this fiction we call the Buddha. You and I, we have different fictions, but fundamentally it's the same thing. So, anyway, I don't know if I answered your question or I de- totally deconstructed it. I'm sorry. But that's the best I can do. <laughs> I have
2: a very short follow-up to that. Okay. That
0: is that, um if there is something called freedom, then that presupposes that we're not free, and there must be some transition between being not free and free.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's what awakening is, I assume. But I also hear teachers saying you are awake." right now, which makes me believe that there is no such thing as awakening.
0: Mm -hmm. It's true, there is no such thing as awakening. (laughs) That's true. And of course, you know from your own experience that there are times when you feel suffering and hemmed in, and times when you feel free of that. So that's true, also. But fundamentally, there is no such thing as awakening. So, but practice, I think we can all say, from our own experience, that practice does bring more ease and happiness. We bump into ourselves less when we understand our own mind and our own life more. If somebody wants to call that awakening, that's only from the standpoint of confusion that it's called awakening. From the standpoint of awakening, it's not called awakening. It's called life, ordinary life. From the standpoint of awakening, you don't see anybody who's not awake. See? So, like I was saying in my talk, it's really important how we view these things and how we think about them, because our very way of thinking about them gets us (coughs) confused. So, anyway, I hope that you uh, don't think I'm avoiding your question, but I'm doing the best I can. (laughs) Yeah. Yes uh way in the back <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 i didn't I didn't say anything about that uh, well, uh, you can be too careful and you can be attached to carefulness and being scrupulous and then um. Lose, uh, lose, your virtue in that way. Can you imagine what I mean? So, uh, you know, the best gift that you can offer anybody, the highest integrity that you can have is the integrity of your own uh, gentle presence. If you worry too much about, you know, the results or, you know, strategy, you can get all tied up in knots. Everything will be okay. Just be present and be honest and be sincere and don't worry much. I think that's the sense of it. that okay? Okay. Yeah, there's so much to say about these cases that, you know, one limits oneself and lose out a lot. Otherwise you go on forever. Oh, isn't that nice? I'll go to that. Thank you. Yeah, don't hang on to it. Forget about it. Actually, uh, you realize, of course, that that's a terrible insult. I didn't. I won't take it that way. <laughs> Telling me that there's a very really clear talk is really bad, you know.
2: Maybe I should say it. It resonated with me.
0: What else? Anything? Yes? Uh, the original commentator. Yeah? I, that. I can't exactly it is, but You mean the, the original comment, the short comment on the case? Uh, Ruman's comment was, asked the question, Man used up all his resources at once. How pathetic. Basically, uh, Ruman often does this. He criticizes almost everybody for exactly uh, what this nice woman said uh, to me. Uh, Pathetic, he answers the question with such clarity that he's only gonna screw up the poor student, you know. How pathetic that he can't help himself know, but be clear and precise in that way. It's really awful. (laughs) Because ideally, you know, that's not what you want to do, right? Ideally, you want to, um, because the only way you can find out is for yourself, right? It's the only way you can really find what you need is by yourself, on your own, personally, for yourself. You can't believe what anybody says, you really can't. And the only virtue of somebody saying anything, I mean, I'm highly conscious of the fact that whenever I give a talk, I'm always saying the same thing. I'm saying, practice. That's it. That's all I'm saying. I'm trying to encourage you to practice. So, so let's, uh, but to give clear explanations sometimes uh, creates the illusion oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you have to find out for yourself. So that's what Mumon is always criticizing. All the teachers, uh, everyone, he says, "You, you you gave away too much. You didn't, you didn't, you weren't tough enough. You didn't let the student, you didn't turn the student back on himself or on herself so that they would find out for themselves. So, that was his comment. Yes? Is there a benefit to holding on to your experiences in your spiritual practice. Well, for instance, can you think of a benefit? Sounds like you have one in mind. Well, I was, I, I, had, I got an instruction from a teacher some number of years ago when I related a spiritual experience that I, that I had, and he said to hold on to that for dear life. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, but uh, don't wear it like blinders over your eyes. That's the trouble with uh, holding on to something is we make it into blinders on our eyes. Maybe hold on to it for dear life means don't forget to come back to your practice every moment. It was years later that I think I understood it in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. tricky, you know, uh, because you can make not holding on into a doctrine and hold on to it, right? So, we want to avoid that. I mean, you know, there, there aren't practices really being alive, being present, right? So, there aren't any rules. And I have often had the experience of, you know, someone comes in for an interview and I tell them one thing and the next person comes in for for an interview and I tell them exactly the opposite thing. Because for that person at that time, that's really right. At least as far as I can see. So, depends. Flexibility. Letting go and looking at what's happening and being practical with your practice now is the main thing. You know, uh, Readiness. To be ready to change or not according to conditions. You have to have that kind of fearless flexibility.
1: Mm-hmm. In my practice, I find that when I tr- I'm kind of new to it, mm-hmm. when I try and breathe, all of a sudden I can't breathe, it's not coordinated, I'm out of breath, uh, do walking meditation. I start tipping over when I do it slow. How do you get rid of that self-consciousness?
0: Uh, don't try to get rid of it," she said. "Can I, I should be repeating these questions? I'm sorry. She's saying that uh, at, she's new to practice, and sometimes when she practices awareness of breathing, uh, she's short of breath, or the breath is off kilter, and sometimes in walking meditation, she uh, stumbles or. It doesn't feel balanced, and how does she, she said the question was, how can I get rid of that? And uh, well, don't try to get rid of it. Uh, Just uh, be with it, be present with it, be aware of it, don't think it's supposed to be otherwise. If you do that, it will change. If you try to get rid of it, it will increase. Just breathe right. (laughs) It's interesting, uh, you know, uh, I stress meditation on the breath. And for most people, especially uh, Westerners, it's a very good practice because uh, classically, when they they list the many uh, possible uh, objects of meditation, they always say, Meditating on the breath is good uh, when you have excessive discursive thought, which is most of us, because we have such enormous stimulation of the brain, you know. I mean, consider somebody living in a place where there's no billboards, no television, no radio, and there's big open spaces and fields and rice paddies and whatnot. Imagine you'd have a lot less discursive thought because you have a lot less stimulation and stuff that worry about and think about. So, for most people, meditating on the breath is really good, but not everybody. There are some people for whom, uh, for various reasons at various times, it's not a good practice. But you can't talk about that in a big group of people, right? You've got to sort of hit the middle thing. So, but keep, so maybe that, maybe that uh, meditating on the breath isn't good for you, is what I'm saying. But I would stay with it and see what happens. And don't think that you're doing it wrong. In, in meditation practice, there's no way to do it wrong. The only way to do it wrong is not to do it. <laughs> then you're not doing it. And that would be wrong.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so as long as you sit down there and do it, and you make a sincere effort, because you see, you think uh, naturally, you think, you know, well, I'm trying to do meditation practice, and now i got instruction, and i got to do it right. Am I doing it wrong? Gee, I might be doing this wrong and maybe that wrong. And and that kind of worry about doing it right automatically creates some uh, subtle anxiety that, that makes the breath hitch. So there isn't, there isn't any way of doing it right or wrong. Just sit and try your best. If you do that, then that's all you have to do. And then what you need will come out of that. Trust that.
1: Yeah. inherent in a practice. And what I hear you (coughs) repeatedly asking us to do is sort of simply to (coughs) commit to a practice. Mm -hmm. But in practicing, we're committing. And I guess I'm sort of feeling confused about that. What is the place of a commitment or a commitment um, to a practice even, if we're not supposed to be attached to an idea Oh I see what you're saying. She's she yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, right, right. If I'm understanding it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm repeating this for the benefit of those who didn't hear in the back. She's raising the issue of commitment. Commitment to a practice, but any commitment. If I'm talking about not holding on to anything, you know, letting go of everything, just being present, how could there be commitment? Wouldn't you just be like doing a different practice every day or how could you be committed to anything? Well, uh, in thought, in logic, that certainly seems to be true.
1: Right, but then even if you go to the heart and you say, well, my heart wants this or my Uh heart wants to feel that, but I thought we just said learned that the heart and the mind are the same and one. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Then what's the difference?
0: Yeah, what's the difference? Then she's further saying, so then... uh, if the, you know even with the heart, the heart is the same as the mind. At any anyway, it's all very confusing. That's where the mystery. But you see, uh, it's exactly the opposite of how it would seem to look. It's exactly because you can't hold on to anything that commitment arises. You 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 practice. And you come to recognize, through your practice, this, what I'm saying. You come to see that. You come to see, you're sitting on your cushion, you see how thoughts come and go, you know, all the time. Feelings come and go all the time. You begin to realize the radically impermanent nature of experience and life. And you recognize that the only way that you can live then, the more you see that, the more you realize the only way that you can live then is to fully Embody and move toward that and that is what commitment is So even
1: in practicing, it's really just a constant fluctuation between Practicing and recognizing how difficult it is to practice and practicing you see? I'm
0: not understanding you. I'm sorry
1: Well, it just seems like you're saying the practice is recognizing that the difficulty is constantly recognizing the difficulty of
0: practicing no, no, no. Because uh, I'm not saying difficulty. I'm saying that things come and go. That's not necessarily difficult. That things come and go is difficult when you want them to stay still. <laughs> then it's difficult. But when you commit yourself to that, it's easy. It's happy. It's not difficult. You understand? For the
1: practice.
0: Yeah. yeah. In anything. For example, uh, suppose you have uh, a wonderful boyfriend and everything's going well, but then he changes. You know, it, it becomes, you know, time goes by, he changes, you change. Then, you know, like you're suffering, because you think, yeah, I had this nice boyfriend, he was like this. You know, And I like that, now he's like that, and I'm not so sure if I like that, and now I'm really confused and I'm suffering. But if you recognize that your commitment to him included the fact that you couldn't pin him down, that he was changing, then that commitment would be much stronger and happier, if you recognize that. And that would actually be the only way that you could make a true commitment, is committing yourself to the way things are. You can't commit yourself to the way things aren't, really. You can think you're doing that. <laughs> but then the result of that would be suffering. You know? Right? So you have to, the only way that there is, and I think that there is, a, very important in practice, is commitment. But not some sort of leap of commitment. But the, the the development, naturally, of a deep feeling of commitment that comes out of your experience day by day in practice. And then... That commitment itself becomes a vehicle for more development. And it's the same thing with everything. I mean, after all, we have to be wholehearted, right, in our living. If we're tentative in our practice and in our living, we're not going to get anywhere. We're going to be standing uh, at the sidelines, you know, waiting for life to begin. So there's no choice but to be wholehearted and committed, but the only way that that can really happen is when you recognize how things really are with you and with the world. Then you can really be wholehearted. So even though logically it seems, to you, if everything changes, how can there be commitment in reality? Because everything changes, there must be commitment. I don't know if you can make sense of that, but that's what I think. But, like I say, you got to see that for yourself. One more, if we, if anybody is has one. Yes. Yes, sir. Your response to an earlier question was seems like a good idea. Therefore, that's an appropriate response to any issue except right now. Seems like a good idea. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> that was a short one. So, last
2: question. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Somebody, uh, was it the person? Yeah, in front, yes. Um, I have gone through a lot of changes in the past few months. Mm-hmm. I had the relationship, started a new
2: job. And it's been very difficult, and I think what I tend to do is I cling to the idea that it shouldn't be difficult mm-hmm. because, you know, I made this change, and yeah. it's gonna be for the better. Yeah. And and now I'm realizing, I'm sitting here, that I cling to that idea. Yeah. God will be me happier. Yeah. Or I cling to the idea of my boss liking me, the new boss. Yeah.
0: You know, so I'm, I'm beginning to see just how attached I am to all this external thing. Yeah, right. And on my way here, I was like, you know, sobbing. Mm, sorry. I sorry. like I here and all of a sudden it all so silly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so many of our problems are so silly, it's really true. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen next. And, uh, and certainly, difficulty is a part of life. You can't avoid, that. that's the thing, you know, we think it's supposed to be a certain way, and it's not. And sometimes it's just difficult, and when it's difficult... It's a lot easier to get through that difficulty when we don't expect it to be otherwise and we don't resist the difficulty that's there. Actually, it makes no difference, really, whether it's difficult or not difficult. <laughs> because the only thing there is is wholehearted facing what is. If it's difficult, okay. There are no choices there but for me to face that and live that. And I all the time think to myself, you know, you don't know in the next minute what's going to happen. Uh, the mind is subject to conditions. If the conditions are such that your mind is going to suffer, that's what's going to happen. And that's true for anybody in this room, myself included. I just don't know. I mean, if I went without sleep for four or five days, and this or that, you know, I would be in a raging state of mind. I wouldn't have my my state of mind that I have now. And if if my practice is uh, not uh, able... To confront that and work with that and and face that and wholeheartedly take that on, then what, what am I doing? So yeah, it's hard sometimes. And when we're in the midst of changing conditions, even if they're changing conditions that we chose, because we haven't yet structured our life around the changing conditions, we feel off balance and we feel out of sorts and, you know, it's suffering. We have to just suffer when we suffer, that's all. So don't expect anything. Be humble you know, in, in the recognition that one never knows what state of mind is going to appear next. And whatever state of mind that appears next has to be taken as an opportunity for practice. That's the only way. You have to face each moment with commitment, you know, full commitment. Each changing situation. Because uh, it's inevitable that we will, we're we going to lose everything, right? Everybody in this room here, we're losing, going to lose everything. Body, mind, friends, everything, very quickly, very soon. If we can if our practice doesn't take us that far, then you know what are we doing? So, so you're just practicing for that. Right? So, oh, good, I get a chance. Every time I get sick, I think, oh, good, practice for death. Excellent. <laughs> So I try to, you know, try to use it like that. Well, I always get a big kick out of coming to Spirit Rock. I do. I really, you're such a very friendly and sweet uh, audience. Plus, there's so many of you. My God, where did you come from? Why are you here?
2: <laughs> where are you
0: going next? I'll be a traffic jam. Thank you very much. Take care of yourselves. Oh, more announcements. More <laughs> announcements. Uh, this Wednesday morning from 9 to 11, Sylvia Burstein. That's 9 to 11 in the morning, I think. Yeah, Wednesday morning. Deborah Chamberlain Taylor and or Julie Ruster lead the Thursday morning women's group from 10 to noon. Friday morning meditation with Anna Douglas and a yoga t- yoga teacher. From ten to twelve, beginning Tuesday, February fifth. Nina Wise, and I know Nina Wise; she's a great person. We'll be meeting, and very funny. We'll be leading an eight-week class series for cancer survivors, including Dharma tools for healing. Class goes from February 5 through March 26th, $40 for the eight weeks, plus Donna donation to the teacher. Mm -hmm. Next week's Donna teacher, and I guess that means the Monday night, is Deborah Chamberlain-Taylor, and the following week will be Ed Brown. And this is a reminder. We would really appreciate you looking around your chair or cushion and picking up any of your belongings and taking them out of the room as you leave. Well, wouldn't you do that anyway? Why do I have to tell you that? (laughs) Don't take off your socks and leave them on the floor. You know, wear them out of the room. (laughs) Please help move and stack the chairs at the edge of the room. Please drive carefully and remember, don't turn left on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. Turn right on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. Thank you. Take care. Oh, hi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Terrific talk. I feel like I'm about a six, day, six days into a retreat right now. Oh, that's right. Thanks. Nice. Thank you.